When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the We Are Podcast on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. And man, oh man, how good do you feel about Penn State football now? And how much will this linger throughout the offseason, the summer, next preseason? It is amazing in sports how one game can really change a lot of things. I just wrote about this on Saturday in my report card for the season about uh, how you can you can be sitting through a boring movie. How many of you have, have had this happen? You're sitting through a boring movie. You're like, ah, come on. This isn't anywhere near as good as I thought it would be. And then all of a sudden, like the last five minutes or so, the ending is just fantastic. And you're like, whoa! <laughs> and you walk out of the theater and you're, Telling your wife or husband or friends or whatever, man, that was awesome. Do you, you see that coming at the end? Well, it doesn't change the fact that most of the season, most of the movie might have been kind of boring, but that's how the brain works. That's how the mind works. You're left with the last impression. And if you have a good ending, it just changes your perception of everything. This was not necessarily a great Penn State football season. They lost their two most important games to Ohio State. Michigan did not beat a ranked team the entire season. But if you consider what the Rose Bowl represents, the best bowl game in all of college football, outside of the playoff, of course, and then you get to play a top 10 team out there in Utah, and you beat that team thoroughly and convincingly, we're going to break down the game a little bit in the second segment of this. But the main point I want to make is just the perception and how it changes how we feel about this Penn State football team, this particular season, the program as a whole, the future, James Franklin. It's just interesting because what really changed? They had one really good game. Against a team that we think is pretty good, but I mean, I mean, Utah lost four games. But it was the Rose Bowl. Utah was the Pac-12 champ. Penn State dominated them. And so it's just interesting how, how perception and the way we view things can change by the last chapter. I don't really read a lot of books. I'm more of a current affairs, news kind of guy. If you read a lot of books, I don't know, maybe you sit through a boring book, it barely holds your attention. But if you have a great finish, like, wow, it's a great book. I want to mention this, and again, we'll break down the game in, in the second segment. There has long been a misconception about me specifically 
with regards to Penn State football. And I think in general, the media, when it comes to sports, a lot of sports fans in this country seem to think that the media is against their team. They would rather have their, have the team lose. People love salacious stories and piling on when the team loses and so on and so forth. And so there are a lot of sports fans that are very, very territorial and provincial. Like, hey, this is my team. How dare you criticize my team? If you criticize my team, you must hate my team. You, Corey Geiger, you hate Penn State football, right? You criticize Penn State football a lot. I've heard that for 17 years. It's bullshit to the highest degree. I would rather see Penn State win. Let me repeat that a billion times. I would rather see Penn State win makes my job a heck of a lot easier. It's easy coming up with story ideas that are positive, optimistic. Everybody enjoys reading, feel good. Go read my coverage for the last week at DK Pittsburgh Sports. Sean Clifford and... Rewrites his legacy. James Franklin gets redemption. I gave A's in the report card to everybody who deserved it. Some places people in, in units maybe didn't. But there is this misconception I, that I want to mention specifically about me. Corey Geiger hates Penn State. He's so damn critical all the time. You know what I am? I hold Penn State accountable. And I think the best members of the media on the Penn State beat hold Penn State accountable for what Penn State should be able to achieve given its stature as one of the haves of college football. There are haves and there are have-nots. I'm not talking about Penn State being elite. I'm talking about Penn State being one of the haves of college football with a 107,000-seat stadium, all the resources in the world that you would think they would need, and yet they go 4-5 and five in 2020. Seven and six in 2021. And so I've kind of long had this reputation of Geiger, you're so critical of Penn State. Why is that? Here's why I hold Penn State to an extremely high standard. My question is, why don't you? If you're someone out there, and believe me, I, I, I'm very self aware. I know this has been around for a long time. If you're someone out there that thinks I'm overly critical of Penn State, I'm going to ask you, why aren't you? If you have family or friends that say, I can't stand that Geiger guy, he's too critical of Penn State, go ask them, why aren't you more critical of Penn State? With everything Penn State has going for it, it should be a top 10 caliber program every year. Maybe top 15. If it's not, what went wrong? I'm merely holding Penn State to a standard that it should be held to, rightfully, by you, by Penn State fans everywhere. And so it does get under my skin a little bit, not a little bit, a lot, that people think that I'm overly critical of Penn State because I just don't get it. I don't understand why you're not. If you, if, if I, if Penn State goes nine and three and I'm critical of Penn State and you think I'm being too negative, I, I I would juxtapose and put it back on you and say, well, why aren't you being more critical that they should have won, or won uh, one of the two of these games that they lost? 
Bottom line is, my job is easier. The media's job is easier. It's so much nicer. It's so much better when Penn State's winning. This past week, since the Rose Bowl victory, has been fantastic. Kind of looking for positive stories to write, looking for praise to pile on with pe- pile on people. That makes things so much easier. And I will, just to kind of close this segment and put a finishing touch on, in, in case you've never heard or seen, seen me write this, I've, I've mentioned this on my radio show in Altoona before. I haven't mentioned it a whole lot either on this podcast or in writing. I started covering Penn State in 2006. I'm going to offend some of you right here. But I'm going to reverse it and ask that you listen to what I'm about to say very carefully. And I'll, I'll ask you the question of why your expectation wasn't higher. I started covering Penn State in 2006. It was the year after the, after the Orange Bowl. And that was a terrific season. Finished number three in the country. 2006, Penn State finished eight and four. Then won the road, won the bowl game. It was the Outback Bowl beat Tennessee, finished nine and four. 2007, my second year on the beat, Penn State finished eight and four. Won the Alamo Bowl, beat Texas A&M, finished nine and four. Four losses. With a coach who wasn't doing his job. That's the part that's going to offend people. My first year on the Penn State beat, I saw a legendary coach in name who, quite frankly, didn't really work all that hard as a college football coach. Joe Paterno rarely recruited anymore. Everybody at Penn State seemed to be perfectly happy going eight and four. Despite all the resources of being one of the great halves of college football. This was my first year on the beat, 2006, eight and four regular season. Second season, eight and four regular season. 2008, they did a phenomenal job, went to the Rose Bowl. Daryl Clark was a very good college quarterback. I give that, I've always given that team a lot of credit. The reason, one of the reasons I am maybe overly critical of Penn State is when I first started, started covering Penn State, I don't think the expectation was as high as it should have been. Everybody was just, well, Joe's still there. He's we're happy to be, be, be coached by a legend. He's the story. Joe Paterno didn't do his job, people. He didn't do his job. Joe Paterno, his last few years at Penn State, probably did 10% of the work that James Franklin does. And you know what? A lot of Penn State fans can't stand James Franklin. And the number one reason is he's not Joe Paterno. And look, Joe was phenomenal in the 80s. 94 was great. 05 was fantastic. 08. I'm not even getting into the scandal or how any of that stuff ended. I'm talking about merely doing your job and hanging on way too long. I'm a Syracuse basketball fan. Jim Bayheim has held on way too long. He's killed the program. Joe Paterno held on way too long. If you don't like James Franklin because you don't think he's a very good football coach, fine. James Franklin does 10 times more work than Joe Paterno did at the end of his career. And if you don't believe that, you're kidding yourself. James, James Franklin recruits at an unbelievably high level, nonstop all the time. Joe Paterno never left campus anymore recruiting. So I got this reputation when I first started covering Penn State of being too critical of Penn State because I didn't bow down to Joe Paterno thinking that he was the greatest thing in the history of the world. What I saw as a head coach of a college football program beginning in 2006 was a coach that, quite frankly, just didn't do his job. He didn't work hard enough or demand enough of himself and the program. 
And that's the program I started covering. And a lot of Penn State fans that had been fans from the 70s, 80s, and 90s and had all this great love affair built up for Joe Paterno, you didn't understand why Corey Geiger was so critical of Joe Paterno. Look back on it now. Look back on it now. And again, I have, this has nothing to do with the scandal or anything like that. Nothing to do with it. I'm talking about the end of Joe's career, the last 10 years of Joe's career. Even with a Rose Bowl appearance in 2008, Joe Paterno didn't do anywhere near the amount of work that it took to compete and contend at the highest level of college football at the time or even remotely close to what it would take now. If this offends some of you, I ask you to just simply think back to the last 10 years of Joe's career at all of the nonsense that was put up with, with his lack of recruiting, lack of leaving campus. And whether you like James Franklin or not, and again, I'll contend a lot of reasons Penn State fans don't like James Franklin is because he's not Joe Paterno. Let's give James Franklin credit. James Franklin now, for the second time, has turned Penn State into a nationally prominent program. He came on board in 2014 and in 2016 won a Big Ten title five years before anybody else, anybody thought that they would after the scandal. And yeah, things got away from him in 2020 and 2021. And I've been as critical of James Franklin as anybody. I've never really thought he's a tremendous football coach, but in terms of the work ethic, what he does, everything else that he's tremendous, he might be the best CEO in all of college football. He might be the very best. 2020 was a, a, a bad year for him personally. His family had to move away, had to deal with COVID. 2021, they were 5-0. and They were ranked fourth in the country, and then the quarterback got hurt. We can draw, we can put an asterisk on some of these things. And yes, we can clearly criticize James Franklin, you know, for not necessarily being ready at Michigan this year or what have you. But the bottom line I want to point out is Penn State finished, is going to finish probably seventh in the country this year. Probably enter next year ranked seventh in the country, give or take. I, I saw Brett McMurphy had them number seven in the preseason. If you think about why I've been so critical of Penn State for a long, you know, from those very early years on, it's because I held Penn State to a, to a tremendously high standard that, quite frankly, I think all of you should have as well. But a lot of Penn State fans really didn't. You'd get mad at me for criticizing Joe, and then you would criticize Joe for the exact same things that I was writing. The bottom line is it takes an unbelievable amount of work to succeed in college football right now. And to kind of wrap up the whole point of what I'm saying here, I've never had anything against Penn State. I've never been against Penn State or rooted against Penn State. I have a job to do and I have to write or say the realities of what's going on. And the reality was that Joe Paterno did not do his job to a high enough level for a good bit of the last 10 years of his career. And so does it bug me that people say, Geiger, you hate Penn State. You want them to lose. Yeah, it bugs me. I'd rather see Penn State win. You don't think I want to go to the Rose Bowl? You don't think I had a blast out there? You don't think it's easy for me to write story after story after story after story about how Penn State's doing really well? That's where we are after the happy ending of the Rose Bowl, the 11-2 and finish. And, and quite frankly, let's give James Franklin and his coaching staff and the players a tremendous amount of credit. For getting it back. Take a break. Coming up in the second segment, I'll recap the Rose Bowl and what led to Penn State's success over Utah.
Okay, welcome to the second segment of the We Are podcast on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network. We all expected a very close game in the Rose Bowl between Penn State and Utah. It was expected to be kind of a mirror image kind of game. Everything was said and written about how Utah is more like a Big Ten team. They're all physical and everything, more more like a Big Ten team than a Pac, a Pac-12 team. I do think that that really kind of played out for the first half. Penn State was very physical. Ohio, uh, Utah was very physical. It was a good game. It was a very good game. It was 14 to 14 at the half. Penn State gets the long touchdown run from Nicholas Singleton on a crazy play for the uh, 21-14 lead. And then Utah's quarterback, Cameron Rising, got hurt. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say I think Utah was going to win the game. I, I do think Penn State would have won the game either by three, four, or seven points. It, a one-score kind of game. I think Penn State was in position the way it was playing defense to win the game. But what we saw from that point on from Utah when they had to bring their backup quarterback in Barnes and he had a couple of nice plays, and then uh, Jire Brown had the interception. That basically was the game. The game was kind of over at that point. What we saw there, I think, was fascinating because that, that that's how football can work sometimes, especially in a bowl game. It's the end of the season. Your quarterback, your leader, really your best player, he goes out, and the mental impact that that had on Utah and on Penn State. I mean, Penn State is sitting there knowing if you've ever played sports, you know that you get a gigantic rush when the other team's best player is out. You, you just do. Be, be it maybe he's sitting on the sideline for a little bit or whatever, and you know, hey, I've got two or three, say in basketball, guy sitting on the sideline, you got two, three, four minutes while he's on the bench to try to make a, a mark because their best player is not out there. I think when when Cam Rising went went down with the leg injury, it just changed the momentum of that game entirely. And really, I don't think Utah had any kind of chance after that after that point. I do wish we could have seen Rising continue to play. It, it probably would have led to a, a much more interesting finish, for, just in terms of watching a good, close, competitive game. See how things would have played out. As it turned out, once he got hurt, Penn State just wound up pounding Utah. They're up 35-14. The Utes got a garbage touchdown to make it 35-21. And that part was fantastic. This is where, as we take a look at, again, everything I said in the first segment about finishing the season in great fashion, a lot of confidence, a lot of momentum. That's the word I keep using. A lot. If you think about the sequence of events that happened to, to, to allow that to take place, a big part of it is the Utah quarterback getting hurt. What happens in that game if he doesn't get hurt? Does Utah come back down, tie the game, and, and then make it interesting at the end? I mean, again, you just don't know. I do think Penn State still wins the game. But I would have liked to have seen, just from a sheer competitive sports standpoint, both teams kind of at equal footing as that entire game went on. Uh, that obviously did not happen. And then, you know, we do kind of have to question a little bit about how good Utah was. Utah beat USC twice to win the Pac-12 championship. Then USC lost to Tulane, for God's sake. Now, was USC fully 100% invested in the Cotton Bowl playing Tulane? I don't know, probably not. But Caleb Williams, the Heisman winner, did still have five touchdowns, and they had a good game. They scored 45 points. But they lost to Tulane in the Cotton Bowl. How, how, how good was USC? How good was Utah? How good was the Pac-12? 
The Pac-12 generally has a way of disappointing you more so than it does surprising you. So Utah loses four games this year. And there, again, there's two ways to look at this. If from the Penn State perspective, the bottom line is Utah was the number eight team in the country and the Lions went out there and kicked their butts and they're going to finish in the top 10 in the country. And it's a great momentum boost. At the same time, if we, if we take a step back and look at a 30,000 foot view of it all, that was Utah's fourth loss. Was it truly as good of a win as maybe everybody thinks? Well, I, I don't know. Does it matter? No, it, it, I can guarantee you it doesn't matter. Utah was the number eight team in the country and Penn State kicks their butt. That's what mattered. If, but if we're surely looking at it from a football standpoint, I was not overly impressed by that Utah team. I, I, I expected more. And again, it's just so hard to know what their, how their mindset changed when Cameron Rising went out. I'd like to have seen him continue to play and maybe seen everybody on that Utah team continue to give a hundred percent from that point on. I don't think they necessarily did. I think they, I think physically and mentally they were probably shot at that point and, and give Penn State all the credit in the world. Penn State truly cashed in and capitalized by running away with that game. Nicholas Singleton, the 87 yard touchdown run. Sean Clifford to Keandre Lambert Smith for an 88 yard touchdown pass. I'll tell you what, that's exciting. I love offense. I love big plays. And those are the kinds of things that were missing the past couple of years, really, for the Penn State offense with Sean Clifford is. Uh, connecting on that long pass. It's interesting. As long as Sean was around at Penn State, he really was never very good at the deep ball. You know, never, certainly never anywhere near as good as Trace McSorley was, nor did he necessarily have maybe some of the weapons that Trace McSorley had. Chris Godwin was the best 50 50 ball receiver you'll see in college. But it was good to see Sean Clifford end on a very, very positive note. I want to give that young guy, not young guy, I want to give that man, (laughs) Sean Clifford's a man who makes more money than me and more money than you uh, as a college football player. I want to give that man a lot of credit. Sean Clifford, let me tell you a little bit about my feeling about Sean Clifford last year. I thought he was very standoffish. I thought he came across as very arrogant during the 2021 season. He was not playing well at the end of the year. The team was not playing well. They collapsed to 7-6. and Sean Clifford was still very, very confident. Very confident. And in sports and in life in general, there is a fine line between a display of confidence and a display of arrogance. And I thought Sean Clifford came across as pretty arrogant at the end of the 2021 season when it was clear he he had really no right to be. To give the guy credit, coming back this year, he was just he just seemed like a different guy. He was happy-go-lucky. He was enjoying the moment, enjoying the process. Yes, Penn State went 11-2. and But even after the losses to Ohio State and Michigan, Sean Clifford handled himself very well, remained upbeat and positive and optimistic. He, he just came across as a guy who, again, had sixth-year college, fourth year as a starter. He was having fun. He knew this was the end. He knew the journey he had been on. And to try to finish and take full advantage of that last opportunity in his situation. And I give him a ton of credit for that. That, that 
he took a lot of grief from a lot of people. Me, you, other media, tons of fans. He gets booed at home in the pregame for Minnesota, and then he ends up going 11-2 and and winning a Rose Bowl. What a redemption story it is for that guy. Is Sean, was Sean Clifford a great college quarterback? No. Was Sean Clifford a really, really good college quarterback? No, he wasn't. Sean Clifford was still a relatively average college quarterback, statistically speaking. But what he showed this year in terms of leadership, poise, understanding, taking advantage of the moment, he deserves a ton of credit, folks. He deserves a ton of credit. I think Sean Clifford is going to be very, very, very successful in whatever he does in life. I don't think he'll be a professional quarterback. I just don't see the overall skill set there. But I do think Sean Clifford will be very successful in business or sports business, NIL, whatever it is that he goes into because he is a very smart, intelligent uh, person. He is a leader. Sean Clifford is a leader. And I've said this before on the podcast. I tell my kids all the time, be a good leader. I got my kid a baseball charm necklace with his number on it. On the back, I have it inscribed, be a good leader. That's a tremendously valuable thing to me to teach to young people is to be a good leader. Look out for other people. Be a good friend. Help people when they need help. Show people how to get the job done. And I do think Sean Clifford, a big part of his legacy will be just that. He was an excellent leader at Penn State. Not a great college quarterback, but he did go 11-2 and his first year. Won the Cotton Bowl. He went 11-2 and his last year. Won the Rose Bowl. It is as as strange as it sounds, he probably rewrote a good bit of his legacy by winning that one game where it allowed us to look at Sean Clifford and his whole career at Penn State a lot differently. And so again, you kind of add up all these factors. If Cam Rising doesn't get hurt for Utah and it's a close game at the end, maybe Utah pulls it out, maybe they don't, who knows? But we view Penn State differently because they wound up pounding Utah at the end. We view Sean Clifford differently because he was able to play free-flowing and everything at the end of that game, throw the 88-yard touchdown. Would they have called that play? Would that have happened if it was a tie score, if Utah had been right there in the game? I just don't know. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, I, I meant to mention this a couple minutes ago, with Cam Risen. I, I just thought it was really... I, I'll try to I, I'll try to beat around the bush here because he did get hurt. I just thought it was a bad football play by him. He's, he had to get down there. And so football players sometimes want to try to make the most of everything and second effort and all that. But in the Rose Bowl, when your team needs you, uh, you got the first down scrambling for the yards. You got to get down. If he gets down and slides, gets the first down, maybe that's a different game. The fact that he stayed up, he can be the toughest guy in the world. But you know what? You can be the toughest guy in the world. If you make a stupid play and you get hurt because of it, you, you're not free from being criticized. And so to me, with all the football that Cameron Rising has played in college, uh, it's just not a smart play. And that game may have been very, very different if he ends up sliding and protecting himself. As it stands, 35-21 Penn State win. Tremendous finish to the regular season or to, to the season. Uh, finish in the top 10 in the rankings whenever they come out. And uh, uh, just the way our whole perception of Penn State, of James Franklin, of Sean Clifford, of everything kind of culminated with, with that fantastic showing out at the Rose Bowl. We'll take a break, wrap things up, coming up here, a good discussion about the national scene and the transfer portal in the third segment. 
that. As we wrap things up here with the third segment of the We Are podcast, I cannot believe that Michigan lost to TCU in the college football playoff semifinal. Whenever you're listening to this, we're heading into the championship game Monday night, Georgia versus TCU. It's stunning to me. I thought Ohio State actually had a pretty decent chance to beat Georgia, and as it turned out, the Buckeyes almost did. I gave TCU really no shot to beat Michigan. Uh, Just having seen Michigan up close and personal with their hard-nosed, physical, aggressive style and great running game, I just thought, you know, they're going to pound TCU because they don't play any defense in the the Big 12. But boy, was I really surprised. Congratulations to TCU. That was a, a... a tremendous win for Sonny Dykes in that program. But I don't recognize, I didn't recognize the team that was playing in the maize and blue uniform during that Michigan TCU guy. I, I, I just was not the same Michigan team I'd come to see being extremely reliant on the running game. There was a, I think it was the first series of the game. Michigan had fourth and goal at the two. And if you're Michigan, you just line up and you impose your will and say, I'm going to push you around and we're going to score this on the ground. Instead, Jim Harbaugh, they call a double reverse that ended up getting stuffed. And at that point, I'm like, what's Michigan doing? I mean, just line up and run over TCU. That's what you've done against Penn State. That's what you've done against everybody, really, for a couple of years. And then watching that game, it just they kept throwing and throwing and throwing. And I know they love J.J. McCarthy. He was a five-star quarterback. And he did make some big plays in the passing game. But again, that's just not who Michigan was. Michigan was a ground and pound team. And I just don't understand what, what that game plan was going into that playoff game against TCU. So now on Monday night, we'll have TCU versus Georgia. I think Georgia's going to kick their butts. The last line I saw was Georgia by 12 and a half. I would take them to cover that. Uh, Georgia's experience having been there and their great defense. I just expect Georgia to to kind of pound TCU 14, 17 points or so, if not more. Um, just an incredible job that Kirby Smart has done with that Georgia program. Having said that, Ohio State would have won that game against Georgia if Marvin Harrison III doesn't get hurt, their tremendous receiver. I mean, C.J. Stroud was without his best receivers, his best running backs. He still is out there pulling rabbits out of his hat for Ohio State and doing a great job. And he got them in position to try to win the game at the end. Well, first of all, he got them in position to to take the lead. And then Georgia came right back and scored. But then Stroud leads that Ohio State offense without any of his top receivers. Jackson Smith and Jigba didn't play. Harrison got hurt during the game. The running backs are hurt. And here's C.J. Stroud leading the team down the field. And if they had had Harrison, I think they get one more play and maybe they turned it into a 30-yard field goal, which the guy probably makes. Uh, instead, you know, they try the long field goal. He misses it. Georgia holds on. Think about this. If Ohio State wins that game, they probably win the national title because I don't think TCU beats Ohio State. And so it's just fascinating when you think about Ohio State was left for dead after the bad showing against Michigan in the regular season finale. Crazy nut job Ohio State fans were out there saying, fire Ryan Day, fire Ryan Day. And then basically, if they had had any other playmaker on the field other than C.J. Stroud, they'd probably beat Georgia and then go on to win the national championship. That's how talented that Ohio State team was. Whether whether Penn State fans want to hear it or not, I mean, Ohio State is still the standard of the Big Ten, and Michigan certainly is right there as well. But I wrote about this this week. 
Penn State was right there for 51 minutes against Ohio State. Let Ohio State with nine minutes to go before things collapsed. And so this was a better Penn State team than everybody thought, me included, probably you included. Um, and we can say that after the big win over Utah, going back to the second segment, how how good was Utah really? Well, hey, does it even matter? We, we get to think of Penn State being a lot better than than we thought. Well, we got Georgia versus TCU. I think Georgia wins that game pretty easily and will win their second straight national title. And then we turn all attention to the transfer portal. And there is a lot of hope for the future of Penn State football. There's no question. I have a lot of stuff coming up this week. The five biggest question marks for next season. Um, taking a look at some of the young wide receivers that are going to have to step up. Because I am very concerned. What's, ha- what's happened right now is we, we all are taking a look at Penn State and thinking, wow, the future is so, so bright for this program. Drew Aller, Nick Singleton, Katron Allen, Abdul Carter, the offensive line. All of those things are true. All of those things are real. But the wide receiver situation is going to be the number one area that we're going to look at here over the next week or two with the transfer portal and then spring ball. Clearly the Drew Aller thing, that's going to, how he develops that, that will be massive in and of itself. But Penn State is going to have to develop a wide receiver. If you look at my grades that I have in my report card at DK Pittsburgh Sports, I gave out a bunch of A's, man. A's and A pluses. Manny, Manny Diaz, Mike Yurcich, the tight ends, James Franklin, running backs. My wide receiver grade, B. I, I, I just was not tremendously impressed with, with their wide receivers this year. Parker Washington is a good college receiver, caught 46 passes, 611 yards, only two TDs. I'm stunned he's going pro. He must, he must be hearing things from scouts or just must not want to be in college anymore. I just, I think college, I think Parker Washington could definitely use another year of college football. Uh, Mitchell Tinsley was, was pretty good too. A, A good number two receiver. I thought he still could have done more, but beyond those two, uh, I was not really impressed with much of what the receivers did this year. Keandre Lambert Smith finished with the tremendous touchdown in the Rose Bowl. That's a highlight for the rest of his life. And that's awesome. But he was very inconsistent up and down throughout the year, as were the other young receivers. So when I take a look at next year specifically, just next year, Drew Aller is a gigantic question mark. But so too are the receivers. I don't think they've addressed it in terms of landing a number one guy in the portal as of yet. Might there be somebody out there they could still get? I don't know. I kind of doubt it at this point in terms of a number one. So it's going to be up to the coaching staff to develop Keandre Lambert Smith, to develop Harrison Walls III, Caden Saunders, or, or maybe somebody else. Uh, remember, we had no idea Allen Robinson was going to be Allen Robinson after his first year. So, could they catch lightning in a bottle a second time? It's possible. And they do have some good young players. But that's a big question mark for next year. So I'm going to come up this week with my record prediction for next season. It may not necessarily be as good as some people are thinking. I haven't fully decided yet uh, which way I'm going to go. I'm, I'm really weighing everywhere from 11-1 and one to 9-3. and three. And a big part of it is that receiving situation. I just don't know 
that Drew Aller is going to have the kind of weapons on the outside that can spread the field. You remember, folks, they lost to Ohio State and Michigan. They lost to Ohio State and Michigan already this year. And that's with Parker Washington and Mitchell Tinsley, two receivers who are probably better than anybody they're going to have on the team next year. And, and I gave those receivers a B. Now, they still had an 11-2 season and won a Rose Bowl. So you can, you can find ways to succeed without having tremendous wide receivers. But they lose those two guys. They lose Brenton Strange, their top tight end. So it's going to be, uh, there's a lot to consider if we're thinking, if we're just going to sit out there and say, oh, Penn State's going to go 11 and one next year and contend for a playoff berth. Well, maybe it's possible, but I think nine and three, eight and four are also possible, depending on one, if Aller can live up to his potential, which is still a big, big question mark. And then two, that whole receiver situation. So. That's that's what we've got coming up to take a look ahead at over the coming weeks and months. I'll have a lot of stories breaking down all of those things, trying to dissect the concerns, the areas. Hopefully they land another big time or another another uh, receiver or two in the portal. Maybe they can get somebody out there that could be a diamond in the rough kind of guy. Because I do think it's going to be very important going into next year. If you're going to maximize Drew Aller, and hope that he becomes the best quarterback that he can possibly be. That's not going to happen with him throwing to the tight ends all the time and handing the ball off all the time. He's got to have weapons to take the ball deep down the field and and, and make defenses respect the passing game. Because if they don't respect the passing game down the field, they're going to load up to try to stop the running game, and that's going to make things more difficult for Drew Aller. All right, folks, that'll wrap up. This week's edition of the We Are Podcast, just a fantastic showing by Penn State in the Rose Bowl. We can feel very, very good about a lot of things, a lot of areas for the program right now. I will have a ton of coverage still, stories, if not every day, almost every day here at DK Pittsburgh Sports here for the next uh, coming weeks and months. So the Penn State coverage will never end. I do not hate Penn State, as I mentioned in the first segment. This was a fun season. It's been fun writing a bunch of good stories with the stories of redemption for Sean Clifford and James Franklin. Hey, maybe we will see a playoff uh, playoff possibility next year. I am on record and continue to be on record saying I think Penn State can contend for and maybe even win a national championship in 2024 if everything goes as planned these next couple of years with Aller's development, uh, recruiting, and the development of other players. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you listening, as always. Drop a line in the comments if you want to ask me anything. This is the We Are Podcast on the DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcasting Network.